Praise the Lord. Well, we're going through the book of Hebrews, and uh, uh, we've made it up to and into chapter 11. So I'll uh, invite you to turn your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 11. And also, if you want to go ahead and get a head start on it, turn in your Bibles to uh, Genesis chapter 22 as well. Hebrews 11 is, uh, is commonly known as the, the Hall of Fame of, of Faith Heroes uh, in Scripture, and, uh, and that's certainly a, uh, an accurate description. Um, the 11th chapter of Hebrews is an exposition. It's Paul explaining uh, and giving examples of what he said in chapter 10 and verse 38 where he said, Now the just shall live by faith. And he quotes the Old Testament to say that. That was something that one of the prophets said in the Old Testament. Paul uses it several times throughout his writings. So he says, Now the just shall live by faith. And then he starts talking about all those that have lived by faith. Now, it's, uh, it's important for us to reiterate and, and repeat ourselves on a little bit, and that is there are two kinds of faith that the Bible talks about. Romans chapter 1, verse uh, 16, Paul said, I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Christ, for it is the power of God unto salvation to everyone that believes, to the Jew first and also to the Greek. Verse 17, he goes on to say, For therein is the righteousness of God revealed from faith to faith. Now, what does he mean? It'd be real easy just to look at that uh, verse of Scripture and say, well, he's just talking about faith grows. Well, that's true, but he's saying there's two aspects or there's two different uh, types of faith. There is faith toward God, which results in you getting saved. The only way you can get saved is by faith toward God. Now, what that means is you believe in what Jesus has done for you. But from that point, you, know, you enter into the family of God. Now you're required, expected to live by faith. So there's a saving faith, which is faith toward God, and then there's a living faith, which is the Christian walk, which is faith before men. Hebrews chapter 11 is not talking about saving faith. It's talking about living faith. And so he speaks of, of certain things, certain characteristics, certain key elements that, uh, that are true throughout the book. One is living faith, faith before men, is based on the unseen, not the seen realm. And then he goes a little bit further in verse 6 of Hebrews chapter 11, and he says that, that without faith, living faith, faith before men, it's impossible to please God. And he's not talking about being saved. He's talking about people that are saved by faith toward God, meaning faith in Jesus as Lord and Savior. He's saying those are the people that are required or expected by God to gain approval. That's what the word please means. It means to gain approval. That's what it's saying about all these uh, elders received a good report. It means divine approval. How do we receive approval from God? By living our faith before men. And it says without faith it's impossible to please Him. There's no way to get that kind of approval without living your faith before mankind. So we've gone through uh, several of them. We went to uh, talk about the faith of Abel. We talked about the faith of Enoch. We talked about, uh, um, well, who was next? I don't remember. I have to look here. We talked about the faith of Noah. We talked about faith, the faith of Abraham to have the child. Now we want to talk about uh, the test of Abraham's faith. Now I'm going to ask you to turn back with me to Genesis chapter 22. We're, we're going to pick up uh, the story that uh, is related to us in uh, Hebrews chapter 11 verse 17. But we're going to read the story from the Old Testament a little bit to see what, uh, what really is going on here. Abraham was 100 years old when he had Isaac. We don't know exactly how old Isaac was when, uh, when God spoke to Abraham to, to sacrifice him, offer him as a sacrifice. He didn't tell him to sacrifice him. He told him to offer him as a sacrifice. There's a big difference there. 
One would have been telling him to kill him. The other is offer him as the sacrifice goes through the motions of it. Uh, we don't know exactly how old Isaac was uh, at that point in time. Uh, most everybody agrees just because of the, uh, the, the way that the Bible tells the story and uh, his uh, relationship with Ishmael and so forth. Most everybody agrees that he was 18 to 20 years old, maybe as old as 30. But we don't know for sure, but, but he was certainly old enough to know what was going on. Now, at that point in time, we'll pick up in verse 20, uh, chapter 22, verse 1 of Genesis. It says, And it came to pass after, those, after these things that God did tempt Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, I, here I am. Now, let me stop right there because a lot of people have, have problems with this verse of Scripture because it says God tempted him. Yet uh, James says, Let no man say when he's tempted, I'm tempted of God, for God neither can be tempted nor tempts any man with evil. So here's the, here's the issue. The word tempt here in Genesis 22 verse 1 is the word test. The question is this. Does God tempt or test man? Yes. Does God tempt or test man with evil? No. Big difference. Every word of God, everything that in the Bible or every word that God speaks to your heart to instruct you or giving you an opportunity to obey is a test. He's proving you. Anytime, uh, for example, uh, Malachi chapter 3, verse 10, bring all the tithes into the storehouse. That's a test. It's a test as to whether or not we're going to act on what the Bible says, take action, or live our lives based on what the Bible says, or if we think too much of our money, think more of our money than we do of God's Word, and therefore fail to act. The Bible says uh, in Luke chapter 6, verse 38, give and it will be given unto you. That's a general instruction for everybody. We should all be givers. But if God specifically speaks to your heart to give a special offering, many times those special offerings are money are, are in amounts that uh, that are bigger than what we expected to give or what we might think we are able to give, that's a test. It's God testing you as to whether or not the word is more important to you or the thing that he's telling you to use or give. Do you understand what I'm saying? The converse is the devil tests or tempts man with evil. He's the one that brings tests, trials, and adversities. God doesn't. God simply gives you his word, gives instruction based upon his word, and expects you to make a choice. That's the test. Now, folks, if we use this in a, in a sports contest or sports connection uh, illustration, then there's practice days and there's game days. Practice days are the days that you prepare for the test. A game is a test. Now, a lot of times people in this modern day, they want kids to play games and not keep score. How stupid can you get? Life is about a test. Everything is about comparing yourself to what you used to be. Maybe not be, maybe it's not comparing yourself to other people, but you're certainly only able to track progress when you judge yourself based on today compared to yesterday or last week or last month or last year or whatever. If we put it in an educational context, classroom days are study days. They're preparation days. Test days are the real key for the course. It's that way with the Christian life. There are some days that you're not necessarily going to be tested. Those are days that we're to study to show ourselves approved unto God. Workmen that need not to be ashamed. But what's the whole purpose of studying and putting the Word of God into our heart? So that we're ready when the test or trial comes. We can be ready when God challenges us with the Word 
gives us instruction so that we can obey him or when the devil comes with trouble. Now, you tell me, as a parent, are you not most proud of your kids when they handled the test? You love them anyway. And if they flunked the test, you put your arm around them, you say, that's okay, Johnny, let's do better next time, and you try to come up with a plan where they're better prepared for the next test to come around. So this has nothing to do with love. It has nothing to do with God's, uh, your position or your relationship with God. It has everything to do with gaining divine approval. God is pleased when we best the enemy's test, and he's certainly pleased when we obey his instruction or his command. That's the difference, folks. God tempts people. God will put you in a position to be tempted of the devil. Jesus was led of the Holy Ghost into the wilderness, not for the purpose of being tested by the devil, but for the purpose of committing himself to the ministry that God had for him. It was a time of commitment, but God knew full well that Jesus was able to overcome anything the devil threw at him. Guess what? The Bible says you have the same ability that Jesus had when it comes to dealing with the devil. So instead of running from tests, instead of running from trials and adversities and things like that, we should not fear them if we've done our work to prepare. Now, how many of you would like to go through life without ever having a test, either from God or from the devil? Yeah. Guess what that would do for you? Nothing. You wouldn't grow. You wouldn't develop. You wouldn't do anything. You might be some person that was filled with knowledge, but that's like somebody that just eats all the time. You couldn't say that somebody that's, that's morbidly obese is strong. They're just fat. The only way they're going to change that fat into muscle is to put it to work. In other words, overcome some challenges. Spiritually, it's the same way. And unfortunately, there's a lot of faith people that are fat. Okay. I'm not looking at anybody. I'm, I'm just using an example for everybody to understand. Do you understand what I'm trying to say? Everything God tells you to do is a test. Are you going to do it or are you not going to do it? And sometimes we try to make deals with it. We try to figure out how can we keep from doing this. Oh, this is going to hurt. Lord, let's just take this in steps. Right? That's what's happening in Genesis chapter 22. Now, let me, let me also remind you that just about every other time that we know that the Lord has spoken to Abraham, he's questioned. We don't know what happens when, he, when the Lord first appeared to him in Genesis chapter 12. He did obey part of it, but we see every other time that he's questioning, Lord, what about this? Lord, what about that? Now Abraham's 120, 125, maybe 130 years old. Now God speaks to him. There's no hesitation. There's a totally different change in this story with Abraham and any other example that the Bible gives us about him. Totally different. He's learned. He's grown. Now he's sure of the voice of the Lord and he's ready to obey. Back to verse 1. And it came to pass after these things that God did tempt or test Abraham and said unto him, Abraham, and he said, Behold, here I am. I'm ready. Whatever you want. Not, yeah, what is it? Negotiation begins. Nothing. He said, yeah, here I am. 
And he said, here's what the Lord said. Take now thy son, thine only son Isaac, whom thou lovest. That is the key phrase, folks, whom thou lovest. This whole test is whether or not Abraham now loves Isaac or God more. That's what all this is about. You can well understand that the the circumstances of Isaac's birth and the fact that Abraham and and Sarah both had to believe God for him to be born under impossible circumstances would create a bond between father and son like, well, that would be hard for us to, to really fathom. We love our kids, but the more difficult the situation was for Abraham to have Isaac, Abraham and Sarah to have Isaac, the more love would have been created but also the more love for God because of the blessing that God brought. But now here's the real question. Is he love the blessing more or the blesser? Does he love the gift that God gave him of this child, now young man, or does he love the one who gave him? So take your son, Isaac, your only son, whom thou lovest, and get thee into the land of Moriah and offer him there for a burnt offering upon one of the mountains upon which I will tell thee. And Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. Now, the first thing that we see is there's no, there's no discussion. There's no argument. There's no, well, what about this? What do you mean? There's nothing of that. Now, if the Lord appeared to you in some way or spoke to you in some way and asked you to sacrifice your child, what would be your first reaction? Get thee behind me, Satan. Certainly nobody is going to be ready to jump on board with this. From a natural standpoint, Abraham, however, is so confident in what God has told him and who God is that there's no discussion. What Abraham does is go to sleep. Where it says he rose up early in the morning, literally, that means he awoke. Well, you can't wake up unless you've been to sleep. Would you be able to sleep? Abraham was. Why? Because of what he knew about God, what he had learned and how he had developed in his relationship with God. Paul talked about it this way. He said, add to your faith experience. Somebody said, a friend of mine, pastor, I mean, a minister friend of mine said, I don't want to learn, my, learn about faith from some guy from Bible school. I want, to learn my fa- I want to learn faith from somebody that's got scars. I like that. Don't you? That's what this is all about. Abraham awoke the next morning, rose up early. Got to get a head start on this. Got a, got obedience to take care of. He's not dawdling. He's not holding back. He's not waiting to see if God's going to change his mind. He goes right to what God told him to do. Can you see the, can you see what's going on here with Abraham, folks? This is totally different than when God appeared to him at age 100 and talked to him about having this child. He'd given up on the promises. Not now. Now he's a totally different man. Faith will turn you into a different person. It'll turn you into a person that knows what you know. Doesn't mean you know everything, but you're sure of what you do know. So he said, it says, Abraham rose up early in the morning and saddled his ass and took two of his young men with him. And Isaac, his son, and clave the wood for the burnt offering. That means he split the wood, had it all ready. Didn't take any axe or anything with him to, to do it there. Prepared everything before they left. And rose up and went into the place of which God had told him. Then on the third day, 
Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. Now, folks, get the story here. God simply says, go into the land of Moriah where I will tell you to go and offer Isaac as a burnt offering. God doesn't send him five miles away. He sends him three days away. What are you going to be doing on those three days if you're Abraham? Plenty of time to think this through. Plenty of time to back out. Plenty of time to change your mind. Plenty of time to try to negotiate with the Lord. None of those things took place. He's going on his way, three days journey, not changing a bit, ready to do whatever God tells him to do. Now, what is it about Abraham that makes him willing to do this? Well, the previous chapter, Abraham knows just a chapter earlier. Of course, it wasn't a chapter to him. But he knows that when Isaac was born and just about the time that he was weaned, there was a big dust up between Hagar, the mother of Ishmael, and Sarah. And now that Sarah has a child, Isaac, the son of promise, she doesn't want to split Abraham's inheritance with Ishmael. So she says, we got to get rid of this woman and her son. And Abraham, boy, he didn't like that. It's like, well, you know, he's my son too. I, you know, we ought to make provision for him some way or another. But Abraham talks to the Lord about it. And the Lord says, do what your wife says. Don't worry, I'll take care of him. But he specifically says in thee, uh, well, let me read it. He specifically says, uh, where is it? Verse 12 of chapter 21. And the Lord said unto Abraham, Abraham, let it not be grievous in thy sight because of the lad and because of thy bondwoman and all that Sarah has said unto thee, hearken unto her voice. It may be the only place where God ever told a husband to listen to his wife. I'm not sure, but we know there's one. Hearken unto her voice, for in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Now, folks, that's a real important statement. For in Isaac shall your seed be called. Now, that's been, that's been years ago, 15, 20, maybe 30 years ago. But Abraham remembers very well that God said, Isaac is the one to carry on your line. Isaac is the one that will be, the, that through him, the, the stars of the sky, your seed will be like the stars of the sky and the sand of the seashore and, and all the other promises he's made. He said, in, in Isaac shall your seed be called. He knows that's got to take place. Now, folks, Isaac can't be the one through whom the seed continues if he's dead. So Abraham is going through the motions here knowing one of two things has to take place. Either number one, he doesn't die, or number two, he's raised from the dead. That's the only way that God's previous promise can be true. And he's thinking about this since the time that God has spoken to him. And so he's not hesitating a bit. He doesn't know which way it's going to go, but it doesn't matter to him. Because it's got to be one of those two things. Either Isaac won't die or Isaac will die and then be raised from the dead. Well, here's a problem. The Bible says that we'll read over in Hebrews 11 in just a few minutes. It says that he, he accepted or accounted Isaac as raised from the dead and received him in, in, as such in a figure. Well, what does that mean? That means Abraham had already decided God can raise him from the dead if necessary. Now, can I ask you a question? I want you to think about something. What precedent for raising somebody from the dead does Abraham have? There isn't one. 
He's considering God able to do something that has never been done before. He's got some experience with stuff that's never been done before now, folks. A child has never been born of someone that it was his and Sarah's age. There's, that's hadn't happened since, since the, the whole system changed in the days of Noah. And people started living shorter lives. This was an undoable thing. It was an impossible thing. He's got experience with the God of the impossible. So now he's accepting that either Isaac is not going to die or God's going to do the impossible again. And if God can make his and Sarah's body alive, literally bring them back from the dead as far as sexual reproduction is concerned, why wouldn't he be able to do that with natural life too? Now, I want you to see something else about this, and that is he's hearing the voice of God, and he's sure about who he's talking to. Because all God said is, go to the land of Moriah and to the mountain, I tell you. Well, which one is it? Three days later, it says, on the third day, Abraham lifted up his eyes and saw the place afar off. How did he know? We don't know how the Lord's appearing to him on these things, folks. We don't know if it's a voice from heaven. We don't know if it's a voice that only he hears. We don't know if it's a vision. We don't know how these things are happening. But however it is, Abraham is sure of the voice of the Lord for the first time in his life, or at least the first time we have record of. He has developed himself so that he hears and knows the voice of God. Isn't that what Jesus said about us? He said, my sheep hear and know my voice. This is the kind of relationship you can develop with Jesus through faith. But it's only by faith that you can. It's only by living your faith before, the, before man. It's only by living the word of God in front of people that you can develop this kind of confidence in the voice of God. Verse 5, And Abraham said unto his young men, Abide ye here with the ass, and I and the lad will go yonder and worship and come again to you. I and the lad, Isaac and I, will go yonder and beg God not to do this terrible thing. Isaac and I will go up on top of the mountain and try to cut a deal with God. No, we're going to go worship. Why? Because God's word is always good. And no matter what you may be thinking about, if I do what God told me to do, how is it going to work out? God's word is always good. Folks, this is one of the reasons that Abraham was a hero of faith. He believed God for the impossible for this son to be born. He believed God for the impossible when he was tested to his to obedience. He said, Isaac and I will go up onto the mountain... And worship and come again to you. The Septuagint says it this way. Having worshipped, we will return to you. Now, you don't know how Isaac's going to come back. Whether he's not going to be killed or whether he's going to be raised from the dead. But either way, we're coming back. Why? Because in Isaac shall your seed be called. He had one promise that's extended anywhere from 15 to 30 years ago that he will not give up on because he knows the faithfulness of God. I'm glad you're excited about this. Folks, this is huge. This is the way to live our lives. And Abraham took the wood of the burnt offering and laid it upon Isaac, his son. And he took the fire in his hand and a knife, and they went both of them 
together. And Isaac spoke unto Abraham his father and said, My father. And he said, Here am I, my son. And he said, Behold, the fire in the wood, but where is the lamb for the burnt offering? And Abraham said, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And they went both of them together. Now this, the Lord will provide, the winds up naming this place Jehovah-Jireh, which means the Lord will see to. That's what provide means. The Lord will see to whatever is needed. The Lord will provide. That's what provide means. That's what Jireh means. It means he will see to whatever is needed. Now, folks, he calls the name. Let me skip down in this, uh, in this, uh, to verse 14. Skip down with me to verse 14. You know what the story, how the story goes. Verse 14, Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah Jireh. I want you to understand he's not calling Mount Moriah Jehovah Jireh. Mount Moriah is where the Dome of the Rock is in Jerusalem on the Temple Mount. That place is not Jehovah Jireh. Well, what place is Jehovah Jireh? The place of faith. See, if only the place where Abraham offered Isaac as a sacrifice was Jehovah Jireh, then that means for you and I to get our needs met, we'd have to go to the Dome of the Rock. Good luck getting in there. Now, the place is a place of faith. It's that relationship where you hear and know the voice of God and you instantly obey without hesitation, knowing God is good, makes good on his promise. So he says, Abraham says again, verse 8, My son, God will provide himself a lamb for a burnt offering. And they went both of them together. And they came to the place which God had told him of. And Abraham built an altar there and laid the wood in order and bound Isaac his son and laid him on the altar upon the wood. I want you to notice that Isaac is not struggling. He's not fighting. Now, Abraham's 120 to 130 years old. Isaac is 20 to 30 years old. There's no way in the world Abraham would have been able to physically force this kid on the altar if Isaac was not willing. Impossible. Isaac has a part in this too. Isaac has learned from his father. We don't know what he's seen. We don't know what he's experienced. But he's certainly heard the stories from his father. And he's accepting his father's relationship with, with God as sufficient for him to lay on the altar. That's trusting your dad. And Abraham stretched forth his knife and took the knife, or stretched forth his hand, excuse me, and took the knife to slay his son. Now, the way that the the burnt offerings were made is you held the torch in one hand and, and the fire, everything was ready. You held the torch in one hand and the knife in the other hand. You put the knife to cut the throat of the animal and instantly you torched it. So Abraham is ready to believe God to raise Isaac from ash if necessary. Bless our hearts, we think it's hard to obey God. It's not, and it always pays. So Abraham stretched forth his hand and took the knife to slay his son, and the angel of the Lord called unto him out of heaven and said, Abraham, Abraham, and he said, here am I. This is probably Jesus. He's usually the one spoken of where it talks in the Old Testament about the angel of the Lord. And he said, lay not your hand upon the lad, neither do thou anything unto him. For now I know that thou fearest God. That's what this has all been about, folks. Do you love me more than your son? 
You know, as a, as a parent, um, one of the toughest things I've had to do is trust God with my kids. I'd a whole lot rather go through something myself than see them go through something. I'm sure you feel the same way. Now I know that thou fearest God, seeing that thou hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, from me. And Abraham lifted up his eyes and looked, and behold, behind him a ram caught in a thicket by his horns. And Abraham went and took the ram and offered him up for a burnt offering in the stead of his son. And Abraham called the name of that place Jehovah-Jireh, as it is said to this day, in the mount of the Lord it will be seen. That's That's a King James English translation of the Lord will see to what is needed. And the angel of the Lord called unto Abraham out of heaven the second time and said, By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord. That's another reason why we think it's Jesus. Because the angel wouldn't swear by himself. By myself I have sworn, saith the Lord, for because thou hast done this thing and hast not withheld thy son, thine only son, that in blessing I will bless thee, and in multiplying I will multiply thy seed as the stars of the heaven and the sand which is upon the seashore, and thy seed shall possess the gate of thine enemies, and in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed, because thou hast obeyed my voice. So Abraham returned with the, unto his young men, and they rose up and went together to Beersheba, and Abraham dwelt in Beersheba. Turn with me now to Hebrews chapter 11. Let's see what uh, what Paul's account as uh, inspired by the Holy Ghost. And, and please recognize, folks, that this Hall of Fame of heroes of faith, Paul could think of a lot of other guys to talk about. But these are the ones that the Holy Ghost is calling to remembrance as examples for why the... And remember the whole reason that he's telling the, the Jews, the Jewish Christians, about this. He said, remember why you started off? Man, you started off full of faith. You were willing to endure hardships, and now you're willing to give up. Go back to what it was like before. So these are things that the Holy Ghost is bringing to his remembrance and inspiring him to write, not only for their sake, but for our sakes. Because it's something to inspire us. These are things that God considers to be landmark events where faith is concerned. So let's start reading in verse uh, 17. By faith Abraham, when he was tried offered up Isaac, and he that received the promises offered up his only begotten son, of whom it was said that in Isaac shall thy seed be called. Well, Paul seems to think, just what we talked about, that the thing that kept Abraham willing to follow through this thing to the end was that he knew the promise of God was that that Isaac would be the one through whom his seed was blessed. Therefore, he's got to live. Notice in verse eight, verse 19, here's, the, here's another reason that we know. Notice it says, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence he also received him in a figure. The word accounting is a word that Paul uses in other places in Romans chapter 4, for example, Romans chapter 8 as well. It's the word reckoning. It's an accounting term. It means to calculate. It's telling us how Abraham got to this place of faith, this pinnacle of faith, where it became such a, a, a world-renowned work or action of faith before men to become an example for us. He calculated this thing out. He's thinking through just exactly what we talked about. In, in Isaac shall thy seed be called, Isaac can't die. Well, if he can't die, but God's telling me to offer him as a sacrifice, what's going to happen? Well, he's either not going to be killed, God will stop me in the process, and, and do something else, or he'll raise him from the dead if necessary. Folks, that's the kind of faith where even if the situation looks impossible, even if God has to raise somebody from the dead to get his promise fulfilled, he'll do it. 
That's the kind of confidence that we can have in the word. Now, what did he calculate based upon? He calculated upon based, based upon what God had told him. He calculated on the word of God. Well, if he can, and this is the example the Holy Ghost is giving us, why shouldn't we? We should. You should take the word of God and instead of, as so many Christians do, trying to find a reason why it won't work for you, you need to calculate based on the word why it will work for you every time. I've had so many people come and uh, come to us in healing school or after healing school and they'll say, yeah, but Pastor Mike, I just, I, I just can't be sure that can, how could I be sure that it'll work for me? Well, I've already calculated that out for me. Heaven and earth will, will, will have to move if necessary for God's word to come to pass for me because God said it. And that should be the attitude that we have. Yeah, but the devil says it won't work. Yeah, and the creator of the universe gave you his word. The creator of the universe made a promise. You think the devil wasn't whispering in Abraham's ear all three days? You think he wasn't trying to keep him from going to sleep? Of course, the devil's the same now as he was then too. There's a calculation that needs to be made based on God's word. God can't lie. He's not a man that he should lie, neither the son of man that he should repent. If God said it, he'll make it good, period. God's pretty forceful about that on other occasions. He said, I am God, I change not. Well, that means his word can't change them. That's what this is saying about Abraham. Accounting, calculating based upon the word that God was able to raise him up even from the dead from whence he also received him as a figure. That, uh, uh, the word figure there means, uh, um, well, I don't know how to say the Greek word, but it's, it's the word that we get our English word parable from. In other words, it's something that stands for something else. So the Holy Ghost is telling us this not only happened, but it also stands for something else. Now, what does it stand for? Isaac is a type of you and me. It's a type of the church who deserves death, who the sentence of death was upon, but is lifted off the altar and another sacrifice is made in its place. It's a type of Jesus going to the cross in our place. And this is something that made God's Hall of Fame list. Easy for me to see why. Can I ask you a question? Who was there? The only three people, Abraham, Isaac, and the angel of the Lord, Jesus. Why is this so well known? This is, folks, this is a story that's like the flood. Every culture has this story as a part of their culture as part of their folk folklore or whatever. Everybody on the face of the earth, every culture on the face of the earth has this story as a part of their history. Now, it doesn't mean it happened to their people, but the story is told. Who spread the story? Had to be God, wouldn't it? We think about us making our confessions. When you take a stand of faith, God starts making confessions about you. Verse 20, by faith Isaac 
blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. That's all we know about Isaac. That's the only thing said about Isaac. Now, let me tell you something about Isaac. Isaac's a weird guy, weird character. Because on one hand, we just talked about his willingness to trust his dad. But the, the rest of the Bible story about Isaac, um, well, he's really pretty weak. He's 40 years old. He gets to age 40. And Abraham has to go find him a wife. It's like he's staying home trying to live off daddy's faith. It's like he's hanging around trying to live off of his dad's relationship with God and whatever that brought him. But, I, but Abraham sends a servant out and goes to find him a wife. And, and does. And this wife comes back. Now, one of the first things the Bible tells us after he's married... Uh, to Rebecca, first one of the first things it tells us is that he went into the land of the Philistines, and what does he do? He's afraid for his own safety, so he says he's not married to Rebecca. He says she's not his wife. I wonder where he got that. Like father, like son. It's another indication that he's trying to parallel his dad's life, but not trying to live it on his own. But the king of Philistia reams him out. He gets in his face and says, what in the world are you doing? You could have brought harm upon me and my people. And here I'm, I'm of good character. I'm, I'm wanting to do the right thing. What in the world are you doing? That makes a change for Isaac. When the king, the Philistine king got in his face, that made a change for Isaac. And it, it was immediately after that that Isaac sought the Lord about what to do. And the Lord told him to sow in that land a famine and he reaped a hundredfold. But then the very next thing we hear and find out about was relative to Isaac's sons. There's no great event in Isaac's life, even though that it took faith for him to sow in the land of famine and receive the hundredfold return or the hundredfold, uh, you know, harvest. That had to take faith, didn't it? But that didn't make the list. But what did make the list was Jacob and Esau and his relationship or his, uh, his blessing upon Jacob and Esau. Now, you remember the story of Jacob and Esau. They were twins. Esau came out first, and, I, and uh, Jacob comes out holding onto his foot. That's what the name Jacob means. It means heel grabber. Now, if you look in your Bibles, it'll say supplanter or it'll say deceiver or something like that, but that's what it means. It means somebody that will trip up somebody else. So what happened with Jacob and Esau? Jacob and Esau had this ongoing competition thing going. Jacob was mama's boy. He stayed home, he cooked, he did all the housework, he did all the kinds of things like whatever he could do to hang around mom. And Esau was the guy you would have liked. He was the outdoors guy. He was the quarterback on the football team. He was, you know, he was the guy that everybody would have, would have thought, wow, he's a real guy. Look at that. But Esau was too easy going about things. The Bible says that Jacob is the one God loved, but Esau he hated. Now what does that mean? Well, it doesn't mean what hate means in our context. It's not talking about emotions. It's saying God had respect unto Jacob because he knew Jacob would make a decision for God. Esau never did. Never did. You remember the story how Jacob deceived his father? Isaac is of of old age and his, his eyesight's not any good anymore. And so his mother 
comes up with, uh, or he and his mother together come up with this plan. He puts animal skins and fur on his hands and, and that kind of stuff. And he makes him something that Esau would have made that, uh, that his father would have liked. And, and that's how he gets the promise. The, the, the firstborn, um, of the, the firstborn's right of inheritance, even though he was a secondborn. Well, they find out what happened. His father comes in. Esau finally comes in to his father. And so the father, you know, asks what's going on. They, they figure out what's taking place. And Esau says, well, dad, that shouldn't count. I'm the firstborn. I should get the double portion inheritance. That shouldn't count because he deceived you. And this is what it's talking about with Jacob. It says that or with um, Isaac, it says, by faith, Isaac blessed Jacob and Esau concerning things to come. He said, and this was a point, one of the only things that we know about Isaac as far as his openness to the things of God. And that is, Isaac said, no, I've given the blessing to him, and that's the way that it's going to be. Indicating that he knew that God wanted it to be that way for some unknown reason. Now the next one it tells us about is Jacob. It tells us about Jacob, but the life of Jacob is a real interesting thing because the law of sowing and reaping really comes into play in Jacob's life. He deceived his father and his uncle deceives him. You remember he goes to his uncle Laban. He sees his daughter, two daughters, Rachel and Leah. He looks at Rachel and says, wow, she is really something. I want her. So Laban says, okay, work for me for seven years and you can have her. He works for her for seven years. Wedding night comes. She's waiting for him in the tent. He goes in unto her, finds out the next morning it wasn't Rachel, it was Leah. He wants to kill his uncle. Because his uncle deceived him like he deceived his father. So he says, what is going on with this? And he says, well, you know, I can't, I can't marry the second daughter, the youngest daughter, before I marry off the older one. Work for me another seven years and I'll give you her too. We're talking about some real sharp people back then, folks. <laughs> so what happens then? He works 14 years, winds up with both of them, winds up with both of their handmaids. Then time comes for him to leave. He goes back to where he's come from. And boy, he's afraid of Esau. And he has an encounter with God. He wrestles with the angel and has an encounter with God. And that one encounter. And folks, there's a part of the story that that really hangs some people up. And that is, you remember, he wrestled with the angel. And at the end, he wouldn't turn loose of the angel. Uh, Folks, please understand. An angel, you can't physically wrestle with an angel and expect to win. This idea that he wouldn't let the angel go until he was blessed, that's just foolish. The Bible talks about the angel's might and, and, and the power that they have and stuff like that. And, and in fact, this may have been a pre-existent pre, uh, um, appearance of Jesus too. This is just nuts. This is a test to see if he has changed his attitude about how to go about getting the things that are of value. So he won't turn loose of the angel until the angel blesses him. But the angel reaches over and touches him and throws his hip out of joint. Now, what is that for? That's to show that there's a consequence for disobeying God and trying to do things in your own flesh for all those years that Jacob was doing it. He came up with the blessing. He came out right in the end, although his sons deceived him like he deceived his father. They deceived him about Joseph's death. But there is a consequence. There's a natural consequence. 
So here it says of Jacob, it says, By faith Jacob, when he was dying, blessed both the sons of Joseph and worshiped, leaning upon the top of his staff. Now, there's a couple of things here real quickly, and we'll, I know I'm out of time, so we'll close with this one. Hey, we made five verses. All right. Um, there's a couple of things about this that are important to know. One is, uh, you remember the story of Joseph, how that they, his brothers sold him into to slavery, and he wound up being the prime minister of Egypt. We'll talk about him next week. And, uh, uh, and Joseph saved his family, saved his uh, brothers. And you remember the story about uh, how they came to him in the land of famine and he took care of them and all that kind of stuff. Well, Joseph uh, was the 11th of 12 sons. Reuben was the firstborn, which means under the right of inheritance, Reuben should have gotten the double portion. But Reuben lost that. And the double portion inheritance was divided three ways. It was divided... The uh, rulership was given to Judah. The priesthood part was given to Levi. And the double portion went to Joseph. The way Joseph took advantage of the double portion was he brought his two sons, Ephraim and Manasseh. Now, he's coming before his father and Jacob is old and he's leaning on his staff. He's, uh, he's you know, about to die or near death. And so Joseph brings his sons. Now, um, let's see, Ephraim. Manasseh was the older one, so he put Manasseh on his left side. And he put Ephraim on his right side to walk his father, walk them up to his father, so that Jacob, turned around the other way, would put his right hand on Manasseh and his left hand on Ephraim, denoting Joseph's firstborn as the one of right, with right of inheritance. But Jacob crossed his hands. And Joseph tries to undo that. He tries to say, no, 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 don't do that. You know, you got them mixed up. This one's Ephraim. This one's Manasseh. Switch your hands back. And he said, no, I'm doing it the way it's supposed to be done. Now, here's something that's interesting, that the Hall of Fame of Faith event is not Jacob wrestling with the angel. It's not him reconciling with Esau. It's not him working for seven, for 14 years for the two um, uh, daughters of Laban. It's not any other event that took place. And there were miracle events that took place in Jacob's life, but none of those made the Hall of Fame event list. The one that made the Hall of Fame event list is the one that shows that Jacob now has changed his position from scrambling to get the firstborn inheritance to now looking to see what God's plan is for how things are supposed to be. The second thing you need to see about this verse is it says that he leaned upon his staff. It's talking about... A life of worship. Jacob has gone from a deceiver to he's now worshiping, leaning upon the top of his staff. And here's the, here's the, the significant thing about this in closing. And that is, how in the world would Jacob know that Ephraim was supposed to get the blessing, the firstborn blessing, and not Manasseh? Had to be supernatural revelation. Had to be a witness that he had from the Lord some way or another. And it was exactly what God intended. How do you find out supernatural information? Now, this is a very simple question that I'm going to give you an abbreviated answer to because of what the Scripture says. There's a lot of detail that we could go into and, and, and more Scripture to support things and so forth. But it says that Jacob went from being a deceiver, trying to work things out in himself and in his own flesh by deceiving his father for this right of inheritance, now to being somebody that's open to and sees the plan of God. What made the difference? 
The difference was he became a worshiper. Folks, if you want the supernatural operating in your life, if you want to hear the voice of God in your life, you're going to need to become a worshiper. I'm not talking about worship when we come to church. I'm talking about a lifestyle of worship. Because God inhabits the praises of his people. When we, uh, Acts 13, when Paul and uh, Paul and Barnabas and his company, there was a group of five men, prophets and teachers at Antioch. It says, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said. That's what worshiping is. It's ministering to the Lord. It's not singing along with the group. That's fine when we come to church and that's a great thing to do in a corporate manner. But I'm talking about something in your life. It's a matter of ministering to the Lord. That creates an environment for God to speak. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Ghost said. You want to hear the voice of the Lord? You want to hear what the Holy Ghost has to say? Become a worshiper. Folks, that doesn't mean singing along with the radio. That means singing from your heart. That's why Paul talked about singing to yourselves in psalms and hymns and spiritual songs. Why do you think he told them that? Because that was his lifestyle. Paul seemed to know the voice of the Lord pretty well, didn't he? That's what it says here of Jacob. That's what made Jacob's, that's what enabled Jacob to be in the Hall of Fame list. Not all the time he spent, not wrestling with the angel, but the fact that he worshipped to see the plan of God to cross his hands and pronounce the blessing as God intended. We'll talk about Joseph and Moses and, and I don't know how far we'll get with the rest of them, but we'll, try, we'll take that next time. Praise the Lord. Let's all stand. I, I apologize for going so slow through this, folks, but this is kind of what I really didn't intend to do, but I, can't, I just can't go any faster. Sorry. We may get through Hebrews 11 by the end of the year. Who knows? <laughs> Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for these examples, these great examples, things that are important to you. In many cases, private experiences where people just simply acted upon your word and faith. Father, enable us to have the faith of Abraham by adding experience to our faith so that we develop in relationship with you just like he did so that when you speak to us in the still small voice of the inward witness or whatever it is that you choose to do, we answer instantly, behold, here we are. And that we will obey instantly without hesitation, without argument, knowing that your word is good and that blessing is always your intent. Thank you, Father, that your word causes us to progress. Thank you, Lord, for the tests where you challenge us to be obedient to your word because we know that those are things that are always intended for our good to cause us to grow. Lord, we love you. We thank you so much for your goodness and your mercy to us. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. God bless you. Thank you for being with us.